morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you all. This is the Business Day Spotlight, your, your destination for African business made simple. My name is Mudiwa Gavaza, and for today, we do get into, you know, what is perhaps um, the biggest news around the world right now, and that is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, I think for a couple of uh, weeks, if not the last couple of months since the start of the year, um, we were seeing all this news about uh, Russian troops, you know, sort of inching towards the Ukrainian border and uh, I've seen a couple of memes um, where um, they say that Vladimir Putin was just sitting there saying no, 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 nothing is going on, nothing's going on, um, yet a lot of people could see um, where things are going and true to form um, you know, we now have an all out all out attacks um, that are being, uh, the, the, that are actually happening and um, you know, we've been seeing a lot of um, action, um, you know some powerful speeches coming out from Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky uh, from there and also at the same time President Vladimir Putin from Russia you know holding holding steady and in all of this there's been a lot of backlash um, from different countries you know slapping sla uh, sanctions um, onto the Russian um, onto the Russian economy banks um, is swift um, all of these different things and it all just has to do with the fact that people around the world do understand and have an appreciation of the fact that um, this thing that's happening over there um, in Russia is going to affect um, everyone around the world. At the moment, the most immediate thing that we've all seen um, is an increased um, oil price. And uh, in South Africa, we'd already been suffering with the fact that um, fuel had reached that 20 rand mark. But now, you know, that seemed that it's inevitable that we're going to see that climate even further just given all the tensions that are going on and if um, the current conflict doesn't come to an end but just turning inward um, you know in that recognition that everyone around the, around the world understands that it's going to have an impact um, on uh, on people you know in far-flung areas of the world we want to turn our attention inward to South Africa to say how does um, everything that's happening you know affect us here in South Africa and uh, to help us to unpack all of that we are joined by uh, Sanisha uh, Pakirasami who is an economist over uh, at uh, Momentum we've uh, spoken to uh, Sanisha a number of times on this platform and it usually has to do you know the SA economy what our growth prospects and all of that stuff but one of the things that um, we tend to highlight is the fact that because South Africa is a small open economy it's usually susceptible to what's going on uh, around the world and for today she's going to be helping us uh, to unpack what all of that means she's actually come up with some really cool graphics that show you know what all of this could mean uh, for South Africa and we're going to be getting into you know quite a nice conversation around that <music> Nisha, greetings to you today. Hi, Madiba. Really good to be chatting again, even though it's against a very tense global backdrop. You know, tense global uh, global background indeed. I think uh, a good place for us to start is to get, you know, maybe your sense around everything that's going on. I can imagine um, that that uh, that initial news last week um, that Russia had invaded Ukraine uh, probably threw a lot of uh, a lot of economists. Uh, models um, into disarray. 
Definitely. And I think, you know, from the perspective that this is going to have a consequence for global inflation, which is already high, and we have already seen, you know, prospects for central bank tightening being brought to the fore, and now given the additional upward pressure on inflation via the oil price conduit um, has now raised concerns that we may see, uh, you know, further tightening in interest rates a lot sooner than what we have initially anticipated. And I guess, uh, you know, looking at everything that's going on, you've already mentioned um, global inflation and, uh, you know, the interest rate chat, but maybe taking a step back to perhaps understand, uh, you know, when we talk about South Africa, right, um, there's the global pressure. But, you know, before we look, you know, into onto that sort of wider scale, maybe we can just zoom in to say, okay, fine, as South Africa, right? What is our direct relationship like um, when it comes to actual trade with Russia? Like, what are we giving them? What are they giving us, if anything at all, that ordinary South Africans can directly um, relate to, to say, oh, this is where we stand with Russia at the moment? Sure. So I'm going to take one further step back and look at the global relation with Russia. And just to make the point that, of course, you know, the first sort of sanctions that came about in more recent years was in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea. And even from that point, we already saw the dependence on Russia declining in terms of uh, Russian banking assets or Russian trade with the rest of the world. Um, in South Africa's case, we do, of course, belong to the BRICS alliance, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. But our trade with Russia is still quite small. It's even smaller with Ukraine. So we basically import and export less than a percent to Russia. Um, we basically export things like citrus and inorganic salts. We import things like fertilizers and mineral fuels. So that does have an impact on things like food inflation and fuel inflation in South Africa. Um, and then with Ukraine, our trade is even smaller than that. Um, that's really just the direct trade linkage. You also have to look at things like foreign direct investment. But even in this regard, foreign direct investment from Russia into South Africa has been relatively small. So the South African Reserve Bank calculates data on this on a yearly basis. And if we look at the data between 2012 and 2017, on average, there was inward direct investment from Russia into South Africa that amounted to an average of about 1% um, of GDP on a per annum basis. So it's still relatively small. Even if we look at the BRICS composite, um, you know, collectively, the inward investment is still between 5 and 7% for that period on average as a share of GDP. So that does, you know, give us an indication that from a foreign direct investment perspective, we are still very reliant on the Western world being the UK, Europe and uh, the United States. It seems like such a small percentage, and it is a small percentage when you're looking at less than, uh, you know, around about, uh, if we're going to call it, you know, less than 1%, uh, I'm thinking within the context of a four and a half, maybe 5 trillion rand economy, um, your, what do you call this, your 1% would be, I'm just doing some quick maths right now, would be sort of below 50 billion rand somewhere there? But you know, more than that, Mudiwa, I think we have to also consider that it's not only the direct linkage from Russia and Ukraine into SA that matters. There is also, you know, the indirect impact 
and the impact from global risk aversion, which I think plays a much more significant role. So even though our banks don't have you know, a large position in Russian banks, as an example, or there's not that much foreign direct investment into SA or a lot of direct trade with Russia and Ukraine, we can still get negatively impacted, even being a small uh, you know, country in the Southern Hemisphere, we, we can still be negatively impacted if global risk aversion spikes, given um, that the RAND and our bond deals tend to trade uh, on a global scale. And so we could suffer from that angle. Um, you know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier on, and um, I guess it's an extension of what you're saying right now, is the fact that uh, South Africa is part of BRICS and Russia is part of BRICS. But the overarching thing is the fact that uh, both South Africa and Russia, in especially, it's considered to be an emerging market. And, you know, weird as that sounds, given, you know, their position in the global economy. Um, what do you think all of this that's happening is going to do when it comes to sentiment around emerging markets, because that's usually one of the points um, around which um, sentiment around South Africa, the RAND, our bond market, and all of that, you know, tends to either go up or down. So this is what I'm watching very closely, because up until this point, the measures of market volatility, so if you look at the volatility index, the VIX, or if you look at our um, South African volatility index, the SAVI, or even the um, credit default swap spread, which is a measure of country risk, the CDS spread, uh, none of these have really blown out to any major proportions. So even with this conflict playing out in the background, levels of volatility have been reasonably contained up until this point. Um, and this, of course, has then limited any downfall in the currency, together with the fact that we, of course, are a net exporter of coal. So we have been sheltered from that respect. But I think, you know, if we do see a spike in global risk aversion and volatility indices suddenly ratchet much higher, much quicker, then we could see, um, you know, the currency taking a much harder hit, our South African bonds taking a much harder hit. And then, of course, we will have uh, negative spillover into things like inflation. And speaking of that inflation, um, what's the outlook at the moment is one of the points that you started out with, uh, because I think the... The biggest concern even at the start of the year was that price of oil. But now, you know, it seems that, uh, you know, that risk is on another level. Now we see oil, you know, having breached the $100 mark for the first time since 2014. You know, what, what, what movement or, what, you know, what wiggle room do central banks such as the Saab have in, in a situation like this? Because I'm sure it throws whatever models they had when it came to um, their interest rate modeling, you know, into, into a bit of disarray. Unfortunately, this kind of crisis is very bad for net commodity importers of oil, of which South Africa is one. Um, the only countries that um, have a bigger net oil import position as a share of GDP in the emerging market space would be India, uh, South Korea and Thailand. So even though you know our direct link to Russia and Ukraine through the trade linkages is relatively small, we cannot get away from the global international price of oil, unfortunately, because we are still a net importer of oil. So taking that into account, we have actually upgraded our own assumption on oil price forecasts, and we now expect an average 
for the year at $82 per barrel and going down to about $72 per barrel for next year. And that basically translates into an upward shift in our headline inflation measure. Uh, we were previously just below 5% for the year. We're now expecting an average of about 5.2%. This is still embedded on the premise that we are likely to see a short-lived spike in international oil prices, meaning that we are not expecting in our base case scenario that there are oil or gas market sanctions. Of course, if these do come to fruition and we see the conflict intensifying from here and sanctions intensifying from here, that could mean a structural impact for the oil and gas market, which means that prices would be structurally higher. We would have not only an impact on headline inflation, but then that would also start to seep through into the remaining portions of our consumer basket, meaning that we would start seeing second round inflationary impacts. And that's a very different story for central banks not only for the South African Reserve Bank, but also for some of the developed market central banks. Because the outlook for interest rates then would imply that we actually have to see a higher level of interest rates rather than just bringing forward the interest rate hiking cycle. Uh, but as I said, you know, for now, we are expecting this to be a short-lived spike in international oil prices, so largely affecting the headline inflation measure in South Africa um, and having a limited consequence for second-round inflationary impacts. I mean, at this stage, you know, we would expect the Reserve Bank to still raise interest rates by at least uh, three times more this year, by 25 basis points. I think there is a risk that further interest rate hikes are brought forward into this year. Uh, but we do still expect the terminal interest rate to remain at 5.75%, unless, of course, we get a de-anchoring of inflation expectations or further signs of second round inflationary pressures. And I think that can come about in an environment where the oil price spike is not temporary and is more permanent in nature. And uh, that will largely depend on the level of sanctions and how that plays out in the next few weeks. All right. Now, one of the things that, uh, you know, is quite interesting and especially um, where interest rates are concerned is simply that there had been, you know, the global um, inflationary pressures even before, you know, all of this, um, you know, came about. And a lot of people had been had been, you know, looking to the U.S. Fed to see how, you know, they were managing their interest rates. Um, at the moment, just given everything that's happened, how do you see them in particular, simply because a lot of countries do take, um, you know, the lead from them? How do you see them, uh, you know, responding to everything that's going on, especially because the U.S. is so entrenched um, in what's going on in their country? I think it's going to be a very interesting interest rate hiking cycle from here, uh, simply because we've already seen some emerging market central banks acting ahead of any interest rate increases from developed markets. And that was because emerging markets had much less room to maneuver in the COVID-19 pandemic. And as a result, they already had to start putting up interest rates in order to defend their own inflation targets as inflation started picking up on things like, you know, global supply chain bottlenecks. Now in this new environment with the Russia-Ukraine conflict pushing up oil prices even further, I think there is a lot of pressure on developed market central banks to front load the interest rate hiking cycle. But it is a bit of a tricky situation because, for example, if you look at the Eurozone, 
uh, 40% of their oil supply actually comes through from Russia. Their oil and gas supply comes through from Russia. So that means that with higher prices on fuel and heating energy, it does also imply that consumers' disposable incomes become eroded. So there is also an implication for GDP growth. So that leaves the European Central Bank in quite a tricky situation. They're seeing inflation pressures building, but they are also seeing dangers to lower growth coming out of higher inflation, eroding disposable income. And that means that they then have to balance the two. Do they act more aggressively you know, to curb inflationary pressures or do they act a bit more cautiously in order to protect the growth outlook? So in our view, we do expect that you know, countries like the United States and the United Kingdom will probably front load the interest rate hiking cycles because they have seen a much sharper recovery in the labor market. They're seeing much higher pressures in the remaining portions of the consumer inflation baskets. And they've also seen a quicker recovery coming about in terms of growth. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, we believe that countries like, um, you know, many countries in Europe, as well as Japan, have actually had a much slower rate of progress on the labor side. Um, they've had a different type of economic recovery coming through on the growth side, and they are seeing far less pressures on the underlying measures of inflation. And as a result, we do believe that they will have a bit more time before they have to start raising interest rates. Now, uh, it will be very interesting to see, you know, how the different central banks respond, you know, to all of that, because it then has uh, an impact on where investors go, you know, uh, are they going to be chasing, um, you know, are they going to be chasing safe haven assets at this point? Are they going to go, you know, to bonds? Are they going to go into equities? And a lot of it is going to come out um, of how the different central banks are able to to, you know, uh, I guess, forecast themselves and actually work either proactively or reactively uh, to what's going on. And we'll probably see um, a lot of investors, you know, trying to, you know, take their money wherever they think um, it's going to be safest. But right now, I wanted to maybe shift a little bit, uh, Sanisha. Um, one of the graphics that, uh, you know, we uh, briefly spoke about earlier on, but uh, the fact that you had, you know, these graphics that you had put together just around what's going on. And one of the things that you highlighted is an unpopular Putin. And uh, I thought some of the facts that are coming out from there, you know, were, were quite interesting, especially, um, you know, people, you know, the age-related patterns about, you know, who seems to like and not like uh, Putin and also confidence uh, around, you know, uh, people that think that Putin is going to do the right things. Uh, maybe you could just take us through some of that and why you thought that was something interesting to include, you know, in um, the, the what you call the piece that you put together. Sure, Madiba. So, you know, I would say that Putin has become increasingly unpopular since the annexation of Crimea. And I think that global leaders around the world and, you know, just general sentiment towards him has deteriorated since that point. And it's very interesting that the way in which the public views Putin 
They also view other what we call strong men leaders of the world. So the likes of a Boris Johnson or Donald Trump uh, or Viktor Orban. Um, and we're starting to see you know, very similar trends coming out where uh, we find that the younger adults tend to have more favorable opinions of Putin. Um, in general, it's actually the men that survey as having more confidence in him. Um, and you actually see quite a large gender gap in opinions in countries like Germany, uh, France, Italy, even Belgium. And you're also starting to see, you know, some education disparities. So in nearly half of the countries that were surveyed, they actually found that those that had a lower level of education actually had more confidence in Putin. So very interesting, you know, we're also starting to see things like more populist uh, party supporters in Europe would also have more confidence in Putin. So that really does, uh, you know, give you some indication that there are some similarities across these so-called strongmen leaders of the world. And what was the most interesting fact out of that uh, Pew Research Center um, survey that they conducted was the countries that had a higher level of confidence in Putin also tended to have a higher level of confidence in Chinese president uh, Xi Jinping. And what we've seen in most recent years is that the relationship has strengthened between these two global leaders, um, you know, opposing um, the democratic system that we have in the West. And, and that has been a very interesting outcome from these survey results. And actually on that point uh, about uh, the seeming closeness of uh, Putin and, uh, and Xi Jinping, it was very interesting um, recently. I, it should have been uh, the UN Security Council or one of the UN branches where a number of countries actually denounced what Russia was doing. And I think there was one... Um, uh, abstation and that was China and they basically said you know countries should be allowed to determine uh, their own borders which you know could literally be read um, either way of uh, either as a positive or a negative you know and it sort of feels as if uh, you know to your point earlier on about uh, the strong men leaders uh, that it's not necessarily that, you know, some of these leaders agree um, with what Putin is doing, but um, I, I guess the principle um, around the fact that uh, they probably have um, whatever differences of opinions with the West and they probably see Putin as a proxy for whatever, um, you know, whatever issues they themselves have, um, you know, with the West. So denouncing, you know, at least from China's side, because, uh, you know, one can think about uh, the Taiwan issue, Hong Kong, all of these different things that they, that they have going on, you know, that they would rather just not make a determination because, you know, tr truth be told, they might be seen as hypocrites in some way. Definitely. And I think all of this is, you know, in part of the fight for a new world order. And um, there was quite a nice piece by the Brookings Institution that basically suggested that, you know, China has initially approached this conflict quite diplomatically, uh, but their main aim is still to undermine the soft power of the United States and to try and tarnish, you know, the credibility of more liberal institutions. Um, and in that light, you know, the two leaders um, have that same or similar viewpoint. So China finds itself in a very difficult and delicate situation now with the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, because they also are quite reliant on the U 
Ukraine for trade. So if we look at the trade numbers for last year, Chinese-Ukrainian trade reached an all-time high, as it did with Russian trade. And Ukraine also plays a pivotal role as part of the, uh, you know, the like the old Silk Road. We've got now the One Belt, One Road system, which is China's linkages into the rest of the continent to boot, boost trade prospects for themselves. So at the end of the day, you know, China is quite linked there. Also, if we look at the amount of U.S. treasuries that is held by the Chinese government, it is very substantial. So any particular sanctions that might come you know, in the way of China from the U.S. could be very damaging to their economy. So as a result, they have to actually play a very diplomatic role, um, even though they have in prior months you know, pledged um, an allegiance with, with Russia. Okay. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, no, it certainly does sound like, um, you know, quite a delicate position um, that China finds themselves in. And, you know, just thinking about, um, you know, people have been talking about a new world order uh, for a long time now. And, you know, all of these different moves, um, whether, whether one can think about um the shift in global um, economic power be caused by uh, COVID-19. And now, you know, this particular crisis, it will be very interesting to see how things, I guess, develop um, over time. Um, so far, um, we've actually seen South Africa uh, denouncing um, what's actually going on in Russia. Uh, but uh, on the last point, I just wanted to, you know, I guess maybe get your thoughts um, on everything that's going on in the direction um, that uh, you see all of this going. Um, I think I can actually share that on my end. I didn't think that Putin was going to go through with it. I thought this was, I thought moving the troops was more of a chess move on his end uh, to try and get um, Western powers to budge um, on some of the sticking points and terms um, that he's been, that they've been making noise about for a couple of years now. Um, so the actual invasion, you know, barring the fact that, yes, uh, Putin has always had this dream of reuniting the Soviet Union and all of that, I thought um, he was more interested in, uh, I guess, getting Western powers to move uh, on some of the points, those sticking points especially around nato i thought that's what the bigger play was but an actual invasion um uh, I, i'll be i'll be honest that uh, i was a bit surprised especially because it happened this quickly you know i think the market was quite surprised i think the market really thought it was just an element of political grandstanding but as you say you know if we focus on the bigger theme here which is russia and china joining forces um, this shift to a new world order, uh, you know, then some of the dominoes start falling into place as to why, you know, the conflict broke out now. Uh, can you, could you extend on that? In terms of, you know, whether, for example, we've also got China and Taiwan being a massive geopolitical risk factor. And that has also been something that's playing on the market's minds for a number of years. Um, as you said, you know, with Russia and Ukraine, this is not a new issue. This has also been bubbling for many, many years. And I think while they are finding, you know, any sort of soft power positions of the U.S., uh, they are finding opportunities um, in order to try and bring through this new world order. It also comes about at a time when China actually, you know, managed to come out of the pandemic relatively unscathed. That It was one of the countries that managed to reach their pre-pandemic GDP levels a lot sooner. 
Um, and what we've also seen, you know, between the leaders of the US and China is this power play between a democratic system and an autocratic system. Uh, we've often seen China trying to play down and discredit open media. Um, and as I said before, you know, to undermine the soft power of the US and to try and tarnish the credibility of more liberal institutions. And I think this is what's really starting to come out. All right. So it's been quite a fascinating discussion just uh, in and around the uh, potential impacts um, of the Russia, Russia, Ukraine, uh, Ukraine um, conflict right now. Um, we were talking to Sanisha Pakirasami, who is an economist over at uh, Momentum. And she was just giving us some insight into how they're thinking and some of their modeling um, around, um, you know, what this conflict actually means um, for the South African economy. She highlights the fact that uh, South Africa's trade, um, you know, with uh, you know the two countries is quite low, less than one percent of GDP, uh, especially for Ukraine. Uh, but nonetheless, um, we are going to be likely feeling uh, the effects, at least in the short term um, when it comes to you know a um, a higher oil price um, that has been um, you know that has been precipitated um, over the last couple of weeks and all of that um, then feeds into the inflation concerns and then speaks to you know, what are central banks going to do and she says that uh, you know develop developed market um, central banks are likely going to take have to take uh, some uh, definitive measures uh, front loading some of the interest rates, you know, just, uh, you know, so that they can ease uh, some of the pressures, some of the potential pressures um, on all of this. And then just ending off, you know, around the fact that uh, Russia did surprise the market quite a bit. A lot of us thought that uh, this was political grandstanding, that there were our other power plays um, that were happening in the background. Uh, but apart from that, um, we just wait to see um, what is actually going to happen and whether this is going to be, um, you know, another, you know, because I believe there was a five-day war uh, a couple of years ago. Is this going to be, you know, something that's short-lived or are we still going to be talking about this in the next year to come? Sinisha, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much. Keep well. This is Mudiwa's Tech. Very few people thought that Vladimir Putin was going to go through, you know, with uh, some of these things. Once again, this had been an issue uh, that had been bubbling under for a number of years. And there had been a number of uh, instances along the way where it was sort of on the brink, um, you know, hence why people thought this was um, another instance of political grandstanding. But well, here we are, there's actual attacks happening on the ground, buildings being being bombed um, and um, I think I saw you know something on the news recently of a really big convoy of soldiers that are heading over um, to the Ukrainian capital and you know what is all of that um, going to mean so going forward it's going to be quite interesting to see how the situation develops particularly around its resolution is this going to be um, something that is a long drawn out conflict or is this going to be one of those situations uh, that is at least short-lived, you know, a week, 
a month, whatever it is. Uh, but one actually hopes for the latter. When you think about uh, something like the Afghanistan um, invasion that happened with the U.S. Uh, after 9-11 and how long drawn out that was, even a lot of Americans um, can admit that that thing, you know, lasted way longer than it was actually meant to, right? All of those things feed into um, what's the economy going to be doing for countries that rely on, you know, that um, military industrial complex. This is probably good news because it gives them something to do. But uh, for the sake of peace, uh, there's a lot of Russians that are even protesting against this. Uh, it's been quite, um, I don't know what the word is, but um, it, I don't know whether to say heartwarming, but it's been... Um, it's been good to see um, the reaction coming out from the Ukrainians at least being able to stand and say to this, say that they're going to try by all means to defend themselves um, against this power, which is, you know, multiple times bigger than um, what they are. What is what are world leaders going to do beyond um, what's already been done now? How far can the sanctions go? You know, how far can walking out of, uh, you know, UN speeches by uh Russian dignitaries, you know, how far can that go? Um, how far can, um, you know, um, cramping out, you know, the different businesses and all of that, crowding out the different businesses from Russia, etc. How far can all of that stuff go in terms of uh, reaching a resolution? Uh, we definitely wait to see. But, um, you know, for the South African economy, that oil price is likely going to be, you know, one of the big things to be watching at the moment. A lot of consumer pressures um, already and uh, putting something down, you know, putting something up like the price of fuel is going to add even you know more uh, to that uncertainty so we just wait and see and just hope more than anything else that a peaceful resolution uh, will be reached sooner than, rather than later And that's been it for this edition of the Business Day Spotlight. Remember that you can find our latest podcast on Business Live. That's under the podcast Business Day Spotlight tab on Twitter. We're hashtag BD Spotlight. And remember that you can review and subscribe for free on iono.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you choose to get your pods casted. Thank you to our amazing team. Our producer is Paige Muller. I've been Mudio Gavaza of the Business Day and Financial Mail. And this has been another edition of the Business Day Spotlight which is a multimedia live production. So for myself and the rest of the team, it is a good evening, good afternoon, and good morning.